Slob Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Hi, welcome to the Kudzu Vine for February 26, 2023. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Joining me as always, Catherine Smith. Greetings from Atlanta. And welcome, Tim Shiflett. Good evening, sir. All right, big show tonight. Uh, coming up in about 20 minutes. First time guest, but somebody that really has a lot of uh, media vehicles. I guess definitely in Atlanta and Georgia and really throughout the southeast, uh, George Cheedy, who um, writes a substack, um, the Atlanta Objective, and then he also has a show, I believe by the same name, on Fox 5 Atlanta, the um, local Fox News affiliate, not local, local affiliate um, here in Atlanta. Um, of course, his politics are very different than the national um, version there. But George will come on in a little bit and talk to us about just really a range of topics that he's been covering. Um, So we're excited about that. Uh, But until then, we're going to start off the show with another buy-sell hold. I thought we did one of the more interesting ones last week on Nikki Haley. And we do have another person, another woman that has entered the presidential process and announced – second-time candidate running for the Democratic nomination, Marianne Williamson has um, announced that she wants to seek the Democratic nomination um, until sitting incumbent President Joe Biden announces what he's going to do. This is kind of a, a unusual move, and, and unless you have a, an incumbent that's very unpopular in their party, and I don't think that's the case with President Biden and the majority of the Democratic base. But we're going to go ahead and do buy, sell, hold on her since she's announced. Um, Catherine, um, buy, sell, hold on this 2024 candidacy. Well, I'd like to say hold because she's always entertaining. But I'm going to say sell because I don't think she's – I don't think it's – worth the time and effort to give her any oxygen. Yes. Um, Tim, you're, you're buy, sell, hold on her. Well, I'm going to sell her, of course. I know in the, in, when she ran four years ago, she dropped out of the race about a month before the first votes were actually cast, uh, she got a few votes in the primaries, but nothing to amount to anything. I think she wants to grab the uh, progressive thing because uh, she really liked Bernie Sanders, who she endorsed after she dropped out. And she liked Elizabeth Warren, and she made a little noise by agreeing with them. But uh, she she's not she's not going to get anywhere. So let's sell her. Yes, um, it's uh, and Catherine, I know what you're saying about her being entertaining. Although, unfortunately, it seems like we've got a lot of politicians these days 
that are in it to either entertain us or entertain themselves, get attention. It does seem like she's cut from that cloth. Um, but the, 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 the stakes are too high. In this moment, the stakes are definitely too high. And I think really any time the stakes are too high for politicians that are just uh, there to get attention or there to – I don't think she purposely wants to entertain us. She just does. Uh, so I would sell her um, as quickly as I probably buy, sell, hold anyone um, that we've ever done you know, on this segment. Um, It's kind of like if you liken politicians to stores, places of business in a town, Um, you know, you look at the grocery store. That's somewhere that everybody needs, uh, that they need that place, the hardware store, the kind of general store. And I'm not talking about Little Lost in the Prairie. I'm talking about your your Walmart, your Target, maybe your dollar generally, your family dollar, those places that people need. Um, Marion Williamson, she reminds me of the, the moon rock shop, the crystal shop that stays open in every little town, and you don't really know exactly how it does, but it always seems to plug along. That's what she is. She's not the grocery store. She's not the, the Dollar General, the Walmart, or anything like that. Um, that would be more Joe Biden, something that's needed and necessary and substantial to the community, the political community. And so... I don't know why she's doing this. If she couldn't win against the president in a 20-plus person field, what in the world kind of odds would she have when you have to assume that she's going to probably have a one-on-one or a few-on-one matchup against a popular incumbent? I mean, Catherine, do you understand her angle here? I think you have to recognize that to some people uh, winning is not, is not the goal. Uh, for someone like Marianne Williamson, I think she has an agenda that she wants to be, um, that she wants to talk about. And this is the, the way that she believes she can have that agenda heard. I don't, I don't agree that this is the best method, but I think I believe that that is her um, her goal is that she has uh, some progressive values and some you know some of it is a little wacky but I mean there's a lot of things that we thought were wacky 50 years ago that are commonplace now so I I uh, hesitate to put to qualify any of that and just say that she this is this is the method that she's chosen. To get her agenda, I mean, you could say the same thing about, and people did about Dennis Kucinich, 25 years ago. So, um, I, I sort of admire her resilience and willingness to sort of put herself out there and and be a, a little bit of a joke to some people. But this is this is the this is what she thinks is important to her, and uh, I can't really criticize her for that. Kim, um, do you think that this could, you know, harm the Democrats' chances in any, you know, any type of way, not even in a substantial way, but just any phase or fashion? No, uh, uh, because I I, I don't think she's going to make much noise. I think her hope is to 
maybe have a debate with the president, which I'm going to say right now that is like almost for certain that's not going to happen. Unless unless one or two more people get in the race, which I don't think they will. And secondly, I think she hopes to get some delegates so that she can get a speaking slot at the convention. And as Catherine mentioned, uh, she's got some things she wants to talk about and get her ideas out there. Um, And basically, that's about it with her. I, I don't know. Of what possibly could be another angle that she would have at this point. Yeah, and I don't think this is her angle, but I do think this is a scenario in which she could collect some votes, collect some delegates. Uh, Joe Biden uh, and many Democrats actually want to change the primary calendar. We haven't really gotten a chance to get into this, and we need to at some point, uh, but we don't know exactly where it's going to go. But they're talking about moving South Carolina up, Nevada up, and some other states, including our own, minimizing. I think they're going to keep uh, New Hampshire pretty early on. They're going to push – I don't know what's going to happen to um, Iowa, but they want to push it back. But Iowa and New Hampshire aren't necessarily going along for the ride. Also, Republicans aren't necessarily going to do this either, so sometimes states hold elections like, of course, hold things together. So if those states – hold some form or fashion of a primary, her name's on those ballots for caucus or primary, and people are just ticked in those states because they're going to see that, you know, this was the Biden administration, as far as the Democratic Party part of it, that pushed this move to minimize their state. Could they be ticked off and just as a protest support her just as a way to um, get back at President Biden? Uh, Catherine, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I don't think that's likely to happen. I think <clears throat> it would have to be someone more prominent uh, to have that be in any way effective, and I, I don't think that it would happen. Tim, uh, thoughts on that scenario? Yeah, I don't think that would happen either. It, it, you know, there might be a few people that would do that, but I don't. I don't believe that it would uh, in any way be enough to matter. I, I just don't see how she gets any traction. The president's approval rating, brand new poll came out today, is going up. And that means it's really going up among Democrats. And, you know, I, I think the party's going to be pretty well united behind him because they're pretty happy with him. So I, I, don't, I don't think she's got a lane to drive in, really. Yeah, I don't think there's a big market for what she's selling um, at this point. And so, you know, we end up being three for three on sale. We'll see how the candidacy um, progresses. If there is much progress, maybe she becomes a topic again. Or maybe she got her, um, well, like 10 minutes of fame this year on the Kudzu Vine. Um, Nikki Haley actually probably got a few more last week. Um, but because we spent so much time on Nikki Haley last week, we didn't get to talk about another issue that was really uh, pertinent and important to really people across the nation, but definitely voters in Pennsylvania. Um, John Fetterman, you know, he's had um, really a tough past like 10 months, uh, suffered a stroke right before the primary, 
uh, appeared to be recovering from that, but slowly. And now um, he ended up in just the past two weeks having to um, be checked into a facility for depression issues. And apparently he's had some depression issues in the past, and he owned up to it. They've been open about it. Um, but yet it's another issue that kind of comes up with his health. And this is a person that has three children that I guess are under, you know, they're still school-aged children that he's got to take care of, in addition to the fact that um, he's now got the um, added um, responsibilities of, you know, two places to work, if you will, D.C., and back in Pennsylvania. Um, Tim, what's your thoughts on you know, this latest announcement on John Fetterman? Well, um, you know, for, first of all, because of the type of stroke he suffered, uh, he could possibly make a full recovery from that. He had an ischemic uh, stroke, a blockage, uh, and and that's, that's not the worst stroke he could have had. A hemorrhage would have been, you know, the, the worst type. Uh, so, so there's that. We know he has some atrial fibrillation that that actually caused the the, the problem with, with the stroke. Um, and and we we know that on I believe it was the 16th he checked himself into a hospital for clinical depression. This is a chronic condition, of course, it's no cure. Um, it's not uncommon, especially if you have a history of it, for it to get worse after something like a stroke. And it takes a while to find the right combination of meds for it, sometimes weeks. He could remain in hospital for over a month with this. Now, there's another thing going on. The other senator in the state, Bob Casey, is recovering from cancer surgery presently, so neither of Pennsylvania senators are in Washington and will be there when the Senate uh, goes back into session, I believe, on the 27th. Uh, There has been, guys, no talk of uh, any resignations, according to the Pennsylvania Democratic Party. That, that's who said it. If anything should happen, we know that Governor Shapiro would um, appoint a successor, and then, and then, uh, depending on when he did it, state laws would take over about when the special election would be. But right now, we're kind of in a holding pattern on both senators, not just Senator uh, Fetterman. And uh, we just don't know where this is really going, do we? No, it's um, it's just more, you know, bad health news that's come out. Really, like you mentioned, Bob Casey from the state of Pennsylvania. Yeah, Catherine, your yep. thoughts on um, Senator Fetterman's conditions? Um, well, I think uh, I I can't, you know, I'm not a doctor. I'm not, uh, I don't know him. I don't know all the circumstances. Um, I think that if he had a brain tumor, we wouldn't be talking about this. As in a, I mean, while we might not 
hear any official news about his designation. It certainly was a hot topic on Twitter immediately following the announcement, mostly from Republicans and conservatives. Um, I think that we have, you know, this country has a terrible um, legacy of um, misunderstanding and uh, uh, misunderstanding mental health and not taking it as seriously as it should be taken. So uh, I think, you know, it's only been a couple of weeks. Let's give the man a chance to, like Tim said, get on the right medication um, regime and rest a little bit and see where we are, you know, when the Senate comes back into session, see how long he might be out, and then and then let the doctors tell us what they think is, is best, and then let the people of Pennsylvania decide what they want to do. I, I just, I think it's, um, it's really none of our business. We don't live in Pennsylvania, and there's many examples of senators who had long illnesses and didn't really, weren't present in the Senate for long periods of time. John McCain, Ted Kennedy um, are just the two prominent names that come to mind. So let's just give the man a chance to, you know, get on a right right regime, see if he can't get a little settled, and then revisit. Um, Yeah, and I'll give you two more names of people that suffered each one of these illnesses after his 88 campaign. Um, concluded. Joe Biden suffered a stroke. Obviously, he was in his 40s. Now he's 80, um, and he's a lot healthier 80-year-old than he was a 40-year-old. They've got red last rights, or they're starting to when, uh, when he had that stroke. Abraham Lincoln, they believe he suffered from depression. So, yes, I do think he can come back from either of these. He may can come back from the combination. I will say this, though. This is one thing that's really important. Governor Shapiro can make a short list of folks to replace him as senator. They replaced him as lieutenant governor. They replaced him as mayor of Braddock, Pennsylvania. But if his health it continues to be an issue, the place he can't be replaced is as a father and as a spouse. And so that may be what he yeah. has to look at down the road. And obviously that's something that yeah. I have no way of, of you know being you know being an authority on that conversation for him. And his family, but if the things keep coming up, that may be what has to be looked at is how can he have nice long-term, t- long-term help for his life and to be a good member of his family. Tim? Yeah, David, the most famous example, at least in my lifetime, is Tom Eagleton. He was on the Democratic ticket as the vice oh, president yeah, that was a- running mate in 68, and it came out that he had – been in a mental hospital and even gotten shock treatments, which were, you know, common back then. And he was dropped from the ticket, but he went on after that to serve two more terms in the U.S. Senate. So, yeah, now, Catherine urged caution. I, I, I agree. I certainly agree with that. I, I, I do. Yeah. Let's, let's, ju- let's just see what happens here. Like his two doctors for both of these conditions, they're going to have to monitor his progress. 
everybody involved is going to have to monitor its progress, and I don't think there's any rush to judgment at this point. Well, we're mm-hmm. excited tonight to welcome in our guest for the first time to the Kudzu Vine, a journalist based out of Atlanta, Georgia, Mr. George Cheedy. Welcome, George. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh, good. So glad you could come on in. Well, um, George, I know that you uh, have so many varied uh, journalistic projects. Um, I think yours is one of the, one of the first substacks um, that really got off the ground because this platform's not even a year too old. Tell us about um, – I guess that's your main literary vehicle is Substack, correct? For the moment, yeah. I, I do. I have, a, I have my fingers in a lot of pies these days. Uh, sub, Substack worked. I, I, I'm uh, pleasantly surprised. Um, it, you know, I just I needed a vehicle to be able to explain what I was doing in a way where I wasn't – where I could get around some of the other social media issues that were going on. I have to tell you, uh, Facebook. Part of the reason I went to Substack was because Facebook was burying my stuff. I mean, and it was deliberate at one point. Um, you know, as soon as I, I as soon as I used the word Substack in a Facebook post, I noticed that Facebook had a competitor for a while, and they uh, their algorithm started burying stuff. It's amazing how cutthroat things are. Yes, and tell us the name of your particular substack and then what it's about and how folks could just get to it. So I, I, I'm in starting year three of uh, the Atlanta Objective, which is the atlantaobjective.substack.com, and it's, a, it's a, a policy look at crime in Atlanta. Uh, essentially, the question I've asked is, why did violent crime in Atlanta increase the way it did at the start of the pandemic? And so for the last couple of years, I've been chronically, not so much the sort of blow-by-blow blow about who got shot, but like essentially what are people doing about it? And what do these things really look like in the aggregate? You know, what, like, I'm trying to get beyond the, if it bleeds, it leads reporting on crime to really start asking what should we be doing about it yes and i tell you what i have so many questions off of that that i could ask and if i go ask them i'll take up what Catherine and tim want to ask about it so i'm going to reserve the right to come back and maybe paint in between the lines that, that, that they don't fill in um, on that but i want to then ask you also I noticed as I started watching, um, I guess it was Road to November, you also had a show on um, the local uh, Fox affiliate, Channel 5, mm-hmm. that you um, do, I guess, more voting type stuff. But just kind of tell us about that show, and, and maybe I just caught the, you know one or two episodes, but there's other um, angles to it. Sure. So I have a quarterly show on Fox 5 in Atlanta called The Next Atlanta. And that was an outgrowth of the reporting that I did just before I launched the Substack, uh, looking at what people in the street were protesting about. Um, on, on some level, the Next Atlanta is about accountability for that moment. Um, lots of promises were made around diversity and inclusion and uh, you know, you know, uh, attacking the issues of racism in society and 
um, part of the problem is we lose focus. So that project, which is still going on, is about checking in with the people who are who made promises in 2020 to see where things stand. Yes. And so quarterly, um, does it have a schedule pre-announced, or do you kind of um, no, it's, 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 it's within that it's, quarter? Yeah, it's it's fairly regularly on a three month schedule. So typically it'll it'll air uh, on a Wednesday. Uh, it'll air on a Wednesday uh, at seven o'clock. Um, and the last one was in January, so February, March. The next one's coming up in April. Okay, because I know people set their DVRs and whatnot. You know, folks still and with a local channel that may actually be a better avenue. Um, you know, you gotta. Have to know how to set it then. Well, um, yep. I, like I said, I have some more interesting things that I'd like to talk to you about, but I want to be fair to Catherine and Tim, so I'm going to pass it over to them first before it comes back to me. Catherine? Hey, George. Nice to be on the show. We haven't talked in a long time, but I yeah. read you regularly, of course. Um, I wanted to ask you, I think um, there's a couple things about your writing that I find very compelling. Um, one is that you seem to be able to bring us right into the story. Um, I think the story that really touched me the most about that was the story about the Morehouse crack houses. Oh, I just remember the first time I read that being like, I felt like I was there and I thought that was really, um, and it was really shocking. The whole the whole story was really shocking to me. Um, and yeah, so I'm still I think digging really out from, up, from that one. <laughs> Pardon? I'm still digging Pardon? out from that one. Um, Did you get in the, trouble uh, for that? Only in the sense that, like, uh, people at Morehouse in their – the Morehouse administration gets squirrely when I come around again asking questions. Well, they should. They should, yeah. they should be squirrely. I mean, they, they, yeah. they, they, they were wrong. I mean, they, they made a lot of errors, it seemed to me, at least from my perspective. But I, I, I think so, how too. It, how it is that you, like, how do you capture that? Because it's not just that story. When you were covering the um, protests on the street, it was the same thing, whether it was your videos on Facebook or your sub stacks or your, you know, whenever we saw you, we saw, I, I always felt like um, – like you were kind of, you're you're kind of this great combination of, you know, the man on the street journalist, but uh, unlike the sort of traditional one that's sort of removed from the action, you seem very committed to the stories that you're writing about, and that's very, um, it's very compelling. You know, it's 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 um, a blessing and a curse at times. I have to tell you, as a journalist, it's been. I am wrestling right now to try to get a story out about the the county jail. Fulton County's jail is extraordinarily troubled. Um, Fifteen people died there last year, and normally in a year you might get two, maybe three. Um, it's uh, part and parcel of what's been going on with with jails and prisons across the country. But you know. Part of the, my reporting process is getting close to people who are who are in trouble and have been affected by the things in the news. And um, 
the, there's a sort of journalistic remove that is normal, I suppose, in traditional journalism that I, I tend not to engage in. Um, <laughs> we feel that. <laughs> and, and it's I actually mean, I, it's created a problem was, for me. I, yeah, well, and that was going to be my question. Is that a problem for you, and how do you address it? And then how do you – because it's also what makes – at least me, and I think some of the people, some of my friends, uh, read you. Is that um, is that sort of um, gritty underbelly? Yeah. To uh, and so, how do you balance that? Like, I mean, I I imagine it must be sometimes frightening to be in some of those circumstances. I imagine your family is probably sometimes like, "What in the world are you doing now, George?" And, We've uh, had that conversation. I will tell you. Uh, <laughs> Especially after the and protests so in 2020. You, how do you balance it, that? And, and so how it's do we... a challenge. It's absolutely a challenge. Um, and I think part of it is having, um, like, the benefit of, of this, uh, this kind of journalism is um, developing a really deep connection to the community. Like, I have a, a really robust network of friends and acquaintances and professional contacts who sort of keep me level, if that makes sense, and are willing to mm-hmm. provide backup, if that, if you know what I mean. And backup might actually be backup, depending on what I'm, what I'm reporting on. Um, the, uh, well, we all have a friend with bail money, right? You got to have a friend with. Bail yeah, money. that's exactly <laughs> it. Like having having a lawyer's <laughs> number in your pocket, super useful. Um, let me, let me tell you, part of the, the my philosophy here is that I I believe that journalism should be trying to solve problems, and it's an activist's position, and I and I don't mean that in the sort of political activist, like where I've got a political agenda that I want to see, you know, like some sort of like super partisan thing. It's more like if I'm going to write about poor people in trouble and I'm not actually trying to solve the problems that I'm writing about, then on some level I'm exploiting those problems for my own benefit. And I'm at war with that posture of journalism. Like it is a thing that I am trying to confront um, and so that means I've got to be where the people are that I am reporting about. And I think that that's a good thing. Um, I think it's kind of a hybrid to the way the world works right now, where essentially everyone is a journalist on some level. If you've got a social media account, like you write the right thing and the world can see it. Um, in this regard, I'm not special. Um, and I, and I don't, and I, and I, very carefully avoid trying to take a position that I am some part of a, a, you know, an advanced caste of democracy, something that I have some sort of formal position in society that entitles me to ask questions or be present. I do not. I am a citizen. I'm just like everybody else. And in an ideal world, if I do this right, I would inspire other people to do the same thing, you know, however they can. Well, that's, that's, um, that's great to hear that. I, I like that. Um, I like that approach. I hope that you can make a living doing it because we, uh, I mean, I'm okay right now. Not well, gonna I'm lie. I'm okay. 
Like, and thank you for subscribing, and thank all of you for subscribing, and it works. And let me tell you, like, this is the one thing I can tell you, is that local journalism is dying. Like, there, the number of people who have enough institutional memory in a local area and enough local connections to be able to get at a story in a way that makes sense, that is a diminishing quality in American society right now. Just like like I'm lucky that I was the right person in the right place at the right time to sort of capture the zeitgeist of this. Like my fear is that what I do isn't easily replicable, and it's something I'm actually going to be working on it over the course of the next couple of years. I think is trying to figure out just what worked for me, so that I can inculcate this into other communities. Oh, that would be great. Well, I will just like say everybody that, should uh, have a George along with, every, Everyone gets to have a George <laughs> Um I will just say that I subscribe to a number of different things. And one of the things I subscribed to because I got a good deal was the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And mm-hmm. I will tell you that it is forever a disappointment. <laughs> like, I, I was reading, I, I was looking at it the other morning. I swear... 80% of it was about sports. And I was like, yeah. why am I paying for this? I, I, I mean, I'm not, you know, I mean, the, the three of us on this show, are David and Tim are big sports fans. I am not. I've never <laughs> been. I don't get it. It's not my thing. You know, it's okay. I mean, I, I know people are. But really, like this much, this much ink from the AJC, AJC on sports. So I, I, I have uh, my criticisms of the Atlanta it. Journal, too. Like, as an alumni. Oh, that's right. Yeah, I left there in 2008. Thank you very much, George. I haven't reached out to thank you in a long time, but I read you and I appreciate you. you, And I'm so glad that you were able to be on the show tonight. And I'm going to pass it over to Tim because he's got some more questions for you. All right. Hit me with something hard. Like, make me bleed. Do it. Good evening, Mr. Cheating. and thank you for being with us. Now that we've been talking about a lot of good local stuff, I'd like to step out there and go international with you, uh, if you mm-hmm. don't mind. Um, I heard this story the other day on uh, National Public Radio, and I noticed uh, just this morning that you had been tweeting about it. Um Nigeria's election has been in the news a lot recently, and uh, most voting occurred yesterday, and results have just very slowly started trickling in this afternoon. Um, we, we know about all of the internal strife in that country with gangs fighting over uh, oil and different things, and and. And now I see on your Twitter feed what really raised my antenna that uh, a mutual friend of ours, Stacey Abrams, is there as an election observer. But before I ask about her, first of all, what is at stake in this election in Nigeria? How is in, how important is that election? So let me tell you, uh, like, first, I'm a Nigerian-American. My father uh, emigrated from Nigeria just oh. as the Biafran Civil War was ending. Wow. Um, right. I'm uh, sort of an Obama figure in the sense that I'm, like, I'm a biracial product of an, you know, an African 
Yeah, he's a he's a physician in California. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, Nigeria is the you know it has the largest economy in in Africa. Uh-huh. Um, it also has the largest military in Africa, um, although it's not an especially competent military. Um, and it's gonna blow itself up. Like I am deeply concerned that I mean, from strictly from the from the from the perspective of what democracy should look like, um, you are looking at a country where 100 million people will have cast ballots, um, and it looks like the whoever's gonna win. And I'm I'm speaking roundly because we don't have the results yet. Uh, Peter Obi was a third-party challenger um, who looked like he was in the lead before the election began because uh, the two main parties have just fundamentally failed the country. Um, Nigeria, (laughs) the average age of a Nigerian is 18.1 years old. Mm -hmm. Start with that. Um, Nigeria is incredibly young. It is growing in its population very quickly, and its economy is broken. It's oil-dependent, only it is so corrupt it can't capture meaningful revenue from its oil. It like the the government is paying more on its national debt than it takes in in tax revenue. Um, there is no room to fix anything anymore, and one out of three Nigerians is out of work. A, you know, a majority of military age voters in Nigeria looks like just picked somebody who may have the election stolen from them. Mm-hmm. Um, so part of the reason my father left Nigeria and never really went back was because, like, the endemic corruption and the, like, constant threat of military takeovers and coups like that's what i grew up in i am an anti-corruption zealot in Mm -hmm. no part small part because of the kitchen table conversations i had with my immigrant father and my immigrant uncles and aunts about how screwed up nigeria was um and why like it is why i don't like when i am writing about corruption on the local level i don't care if you're a republican or a democrat I don't care if I know you or you don't. If you're stealing from the, from the public, you're wrong, and I'm going to make sure people know that. Like, so I'm looking at this Nigeria thing right now going, I want it. Like, I still, like, I was going to go visit, and I can't because I think they're going to be on fire. Um, and in the middle um, of all of this is Stacey Abrams. Wow. <laughs> like, I had so- no idea she was going to be there. Why would Stacey Abrams be so interested in an election in Nigeria? So it's the biggest. So it's the biggest election going on right now, like in the mm-hmm. world, like just uh-huh. raw numbers of people who are voting. It's the largest one in the in the in the world. And if she's a uh-huh. an honest, if she's honestly interested in fair elections, like as an I, you know, as a sort of a political ideological thing, that's the that's where the action is right now. Like if you, if Jimmy Carter were healthy, he'd be there right now too. But but now now 
the the word action, <laughs> as you just described it in Nigeria, it, 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 is she in physical danger? I gotta wonder. Like, I could not travel to Nigeria without armed guards, and I am uh-huh. nobody. Uh-huh. Like, when we talk about going to Nigeria, my family and I, it's about, uh, and we're not super rich. Like, we're not talking about people with millions of dollars. Like, you know, you you start having to figure out who can round up security. And by security, I mean guys with AK-47s and armored vehicles in order to get you from the airport to wherever you're supposed to go. Um, like, escorts, moving in groups. Because uh, it's that serious. Like, the uh-huh. kidnapping threat in Nigeria is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, like, is she in some danger? Maybe a little. Like, I can't imagine even the regime would be willing to put her anywhere where somebody could hurt her. But the situation is going to be, like, potentially very, very dangerous. Well, um, there look there 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 are I believe eighteen candidates running for president. I, I, is there a candidate among them that could take charge and fix some of the things that's going on there? So I have an opinion about this, and I'm uh-huh. willing to express it because it's Nigeria, not the United States. Right. Like I think Peter I think Peter Obi was the best of the three. Uh-huh. Um, but there, there are three who are really, like, competitive. Um, the ruling party has a candidate, Bola Tinubu, who is credibly accused of having laundered drug money while he was a, call, a graduate student in Chicago in the late 80s and early 90s, that he made his fortune by getting Nigerian black tar heart heroin into the United States and you know, and, and laundering the money for it. Like, Tanubu is bad news. Um, mm-hmm. The uh, His main opponent, Tiku, uh, is equally corrupt, just l- with less connection to the United States. But he's also, like, the would be the normally the, the big challenger. It's just you've got a bunch of 18 to 30-year-olds, who've, many of whom have never voted, who've seen their – the economy of their country disintegrate over the last eight years. And they said, screw both of those guys. And uh, Peter Obi, who's younger by like 20 years from the, of these guys, uh, who um, was the governor of a small state in the southeastern part of the country, he's self-effacing. He's sort of Bernie Sanders-esque in the sense that he doesn't put on airs. Do you know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. you know, carries his own luggage, you know, dresses down. Uh, Nigeria's politics are all about, like, big man, like, large entourages, you know, you know, luxury vehicles and all the rest of this stuff. And he's very anti that. And he's emerged as the anti-corruption candidate. Mm -hmm. Um, And young people in general, at least according to the polling from Bloomberg and others, say, He's the guy we want. Um, and it looked like he was winning. And then, like, but bandits have been hitting the polling places. Like, literally, guys will roll up with guns, and they'll grab the ballot boxes, and they'll drive off. 
Like in a couple of cases, it looks like the local elections officials were just straight out bought off. And it's not clear right now whether or not the tabulation that's going to be uploaded tonight or tomorrow is going to have any reflection whatsoever of the votes that people were allowed to cast in this case. Stacey Abrams is in all likelihood seeing and hearing all of this, but she can't say anything yet because she's got to get out of the country before she tells us what the hell is going on. Understood. Well, I, listen, I, I appreciate you uh, sharing all that with us, and uh, that's fascinating about your connection to that country, and I hope everything goes well with it down the road when this all shakes out. Maybe you can come back with us uh, and and talk to us again about that country and that region of Africa, because politically it's, it's, it's going to be very important, you know, to the world as to what happens in the country with the largest economy, the largest army, and, you know, all of that in Africa. And um, I know David has a bunch more questions for you, so I'm going to throw it back to him now. David? You bet. Yes, George, that was fascinating. I know your goal wasn't to try to make us feel better about American democracy, but (laughs) I guess you kind of did. It would be worse here. Um, it could be worse. It's, it, like the interesting thing about all of that, by the way, is that if things blow up, there's a real movement within Nigeria to just get out of the country. If Nigeria blows up, we end up with a re- an additional layer of refugee and immigration issues in the United mm-hmm. States. Like it, People try to get to Europe, but they're going to come here. And here in Atlanta – Atlanta has one of the largest Nigerian-American communities in the United uh-huh. States. Wow. It'll hit us first. Mm. Well, we'll just tell them we want all the next Georgias, you know. Um, <laughs> and we're yeah. uh, well, yeah. well, George, I, seriously, I do want to get back to – you talked about why you started your Substack, and so that's where I want to put my question. I teach school, and so um, high school, and so I, of course, hear about issues with – where that intersection of, um, you know, crime outside of the school and, and what's blocking education, and there's a lot of conversation, you know, related to the pandemic with that. And about – it's been over a year ago. We had a guest come on named Ron Hetrick, and he was talking about the demographic drought and how the workforce has so few workers and really mm-hmm. there's so much opportunity. And I tell this to my students, you know, in the next, you know, decade or more, you're going to have more opportunity than any generation's had in a while because there's just so few of you for all the jobs that there are right at this moment. Now, things may change. That's why I tell them about a decade, not any further than that. So there's all this economic opportunity, plenty of jobs for everybody, plenty of you know, spots in colleges, ways to advance. That would seem to run counter to why we have increase in crime. So why are we seeing this increase in crime? So it's complicated. Um, and that was the first thing that I learned, is that there's no one reason why violent crime increased in Atlanta. There are ten reasons. And Atlanta is sort of special in part because all of those reasons tend to cross like ley lines right in the middle of five points. Um, with regard to this opportunity, and you're right, like there's this, this gigantic demographic bubble that is starting to pop. Um, 
and that's why unemployment is at the lowest point as it as it's been in since 1968, I believe. Um, the problem is that those opportunities aren't like they're not evenly spread, um, and there are there's still a tremendous amount of discrimination that is almost caste based in the United States where some kids who are growing up uh, poor and black and south of I-20 in Atlanta uh, can't really access the kind of opportunities that get them out of generational poverty. Some of them can, many of them can, but enough of them can't that you continue to have a serious problem there. Um, it isn't, like, the key thing for me here is, that I'm, I'm looking at is that it isn't just poverty that breeds violence. Um, it's, the, it's a combination of poverty and inequality and concentrated poverty, like, plus a lot of other things, like the access to guns, like untreated mental illness, uh, like transportation issues, believe it or not, because that could be impoverishing. Um, the uh, like, there's a lot going on in Atlanta. Um, one of the things that I've been watching carefully is the effect of uh, gangs on violence within the city. Um, and one of the things that I'm, I'm finding is that the gangs metastasized during the pandemic because children were out of school. Um, kids were out of school at the same time that their parents were going back to work because like we didn't, we didn't pick a philosophy in Georgia that was coherent. Like when we, sh like some States shut down or when they shut down, everything shut down. So the parents were home and the kids were out. Some States stayed open where like for open, open, like where the kids are in school and the parents are at work. Like in Georgia, very early, the governor said, parents go back to work. But the local school departments were like, kids stay at home. And so what you ended up with was a lot of unsupervised children. And the ones who were already at risk for a lot of this stuff ended up being recruited, like in meaningful ways, by street gangs. And that started to turn into violence. Yes, I'm sure this is a a book, not just one uh, yeah. a research study. Uh, I mean, there's so much there. Uh, George, one more thing on this. You mentioned Atlanta, and we know a lot of times that means two things, the city limits of Atlanta proper, metro Atlanta. And you mentioned transportation. Right. Do you think it's worse for someone that's impoverished, you know, on the edge, at risk, to be in the city of Atlanta, living near the West End, you know, whatever station we name, Bankhead Station, or is it worse to be in Riverdale, Avondale, Austdale, Norcross, without access to come into the city with really a lot of the same economic profile out in that inner ring of suburbs? So right now the data suggests, and I'm speaking specifically about violence, the data suggests that it's more dangerous in the city, like that it's better to be in the suburbs. And I, I hate saying that, but that's the data. The, um, like there is a poverty problem that's very serious that has started to emerge in suburban Atlanta. 
like outside of the 510,000 people who live in the city of Atlanta. Um, and that's a national phenomenon, by the way. Suburbs across the country are growing poorer. Um, the, uh, the, but what I'm, what I'm seeing locally is that, like, yes, the transportation system is somewhat better in the city, but the amount of, um, of you know, inequality is so much larger. And inequality is the thing that really drives that. Um, it is poverty juxta- juxtaposed, juxtaposed against wealth that leads to crime. And I see that pattern in other cities. Like, you look at the cities that have the biggest crime problems, they also have, like, the largest number of, you know, um, census tracts of concentrated poverty. Um, and Atlanta has some census tracts that are... 50%, 60%, 70%, like, poor by the government standards. Um, 80% of black children in the city of Atlanta are growing up in a census tract that has concentrated poverty in it. And as long as that's true, like, you've got the social conditions that are going to lead to serious crimes. Like, that's the thing that has to be attacked. Like, that poverty has to be reduced. Um However, you can, frankly, um, and I'm—I I, I mean, I can list ten re- ways to get at it, but that's actually a much deeper. That's a difficult policy conversation. Yes. Well, George, it sounds so interesting. It sounds like you're learning and researching and engaging. Just like Tim said, let's get you back to talk about Nigeria. It seems like this conversation among around crime. It's still an interesting one because you're not talking about the crime that happened on the corner that may never affect anybody. You're talking about the systemic, long-term effects that do affect, you know, virtually everyone. Um, so we exactly definitely it. want to get you back. Before I, you leave I, us, you mentioned the Substack. Feel free to mention it again. If you want to mention where folks can find you on social media, share everything you want to share. Okay. So the Substack is the Atlanta Objective. Substack.com, the Atlanta Objective. Um, I'm on Twitter a lot, too much. I need to get off Twitter. It is bad for you. Um, but my Twitter handle is Neon Flag. Um, I also write for The Intercept and, and Rolling Stone. Um, and I'm writing about the connection between violent crime and the rap industry for Rolling Stone. So keep an eye out for Rolling Stone stories that look like they're coming out of Atlanta. That's probably me. Um, you'll see me on, uh, on the uh, uh, Atlanta Magazine from time to time, uh, and my Facebook page is uh, George Cheedy. Yes. Well, thanks so much for coming on. Just really interesting Um, information about a myriad of topics. Happy to be here. Thank you, sir. Thanks, Thanks, George. Rock on. Yes, I was George Cheedy of uh, the Atlanta Objective, the Intercept, Rolling Stone, the Next Atlanta, so many different things. Uh, A really, really interesting guest if you're able to access it. I guess it probably is online. You could see his um, show I guess the one he did in January, the one coming out in April. I know he did one in November about voting. 
that kind of thing. Well, guys, we've got just, I guess, a, you know, just a few minutes, and that's time to squeeze in one quick topic. And the surprise visit by President Joe Biden to Ukraine, um, visiting Ukraine, if I, if I understand correctly, he actually got on a train and traveled across part of the country with President Zelensky. Um, Tim, what was your thoughts on um, making that trip? Well, symbolically, of course, the good that this visit did was almost incalculable. Uh, Its timing was perfect just before the first anniversary of the war, just before uh, Putin was scheduled to speak. And and just before the the president's uh, visit to Poland and a meeting with uh, NATO leaders, it uh, it sent a message to the world that the U.S. is 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 engaged in that area and and we're there uh, for now to stay. Uh, and it I, I, I one more thing too it, it it pushed back I think on this narrative that this president is too old for the rigors of the job. Forty hours he he was in transit to and from, uh, much of it on a train. Uh, and and it was just, it, it, it really was a great, great symbolism. It was great visual stuff. And, and I, I, I could not be prouder of this president for doing that. Well, I mean, to be fair, Joe Biden and trains, I mean, that's like, yeah. um, if, if, other than, you know, I guess Abraham Lincoln, who uh, during his presidency, they finished the Transcontinental Railroad, Joe Biden will be no more for train travel than he president in over 100 years. <laughs> yeah, really. Um, Catherine, um, your thoughts on the visit to Ukraine? Oh, I agree with Tim 100%. It was really quite uh, – quite a thing to behold I love the pictures of him walking through that tunnel with Zelensky and he just looked like he was you know enthusiastic and um, I don't know if he looked brave but um, engaged and um, youthful with the sunglasses and I I, I thought it was a great great for the world to see him that way and to see us supporting the Ukraine supporting Ukraine and also good for his you know sort of uh reputation in this country so all in all a plus whoever the advanced team and all the whoever did all that was did a great job i think yes and i'll i'll third y'all i was uh, definitely impressed as well Although I will say, after talking to George, I'm kind of like, now he needs to go to Nigeria and up the ante, it sounds like, unfortunately. Um, you know, because uh, <laughs> that's, it sounds like there's obviously more than one hot spot in the world, sadly. Um, but, Tim, you had mentioned that his approval rating had increased in the latest poll. I'm sure that some of that sample was taken after that visit. How much do you think the, the the visit? And that's not why he did it. By no means do I think he did it for you know a bump for a week in a poll. But how much do you mm-hmm. think that helped his numbers? Well, it helped a good bit, as as well as of course, all all of the poll was taken after the State of the Union, of course, when 
when the the president certainly looked uh, a lot better than a lot of the folks that were listening to him. But this president looked presidential, doing presidential things on the world stage. Contrast him with Donald Trump, who ran up to East Palestine, Ohio, and with out-of-date, literally out-of-date bottled water and giving away MAGA caps. Uh, so we'll have dual optics there. Uh, I mean, who 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 does that hurt, you know? Uh, and and that's, that's been the Republicans uh, yap, yap, yapping on him. What's he doing over there in Ukraine? I don't think that one's going to fly. That's exactly where that president should have been. He was already going to the region anyway for a, for a NATO meeting and to see the president of Poland, that he went in there into an area where a president has never gone before. By that I mean in a war zone where there is no American troop presence there. Um that that was that was really a, a something to behold, and uh, uh, that that that's a that's a president looking like a president, guys. Yeah, I mean, it, it, with 330 million Americans, a landmass as large as our country is, there's always going to be a domestic issue that needs attention, and obviously, you give attention when you're overseas to domestic issues. But if you said Oh, what about the problem in America? You could never focus any time on foreign policy. And we know that we're just too far an important and instrumental country to do that. Um, so we have to tend to world affairs because if we don't and just isolate from the rest of the world, those world affairs will, will come to our doorstep. Um, and faster right. and faster as our planet becomes smaller as far as how fast we can travel. Tim? Right. That's correct, and, uh, you know, we should take our lesson from from the 1930s when another group of America firsters were were saying withdrawal from the world, and we did, and look what happened. Democracy is on trial in the middle of Europe. We, we, we have to engage there. We, we have to. I totally agree. Well, thanks again for, to George Cheedy for coming on the show, and I want to set up for next week's show. Uh, we're going to have Dr. Isabel Skinner from the University of Illinois, Springfield. She's going to come on since she's living up there. She's going to tell us a little bit about the Chicago mayoral race, which the first round will happen um, this week. So we'll kind of kind of get a you know a halftime assessment, assuming no one gets a majority. Um, so we'll kind of get some of that. She's also, her area of focus is immigration and border issues, which we talked about these issues a lot, but we hadn't been able to talk with, with them with an expert. And so she may have some other things she can talk about as well, but those two issues alone are going to be very engaging. We're looking forward to that next week. But until then, it's been the Cozy Vine. Good night, guys. Good night, y'all. Everybody. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and...